Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 25, Deadwood. Well, your hag team is back. Maybe a little tired, but nothing that a drug cocktail of <laughs> steroids and a joyride with an, in an armored SUV couldn't cure, right? From what I hear, Josh, the steroid, it's a methazone, maybe. I'm coming close on the pronunciation there. That it induces a feeling of euphoria. So I've been on... Uh, my Kaiser website pretty much nonstop since then trying to line up some uh, of that uh, methazone. That's that's a that's a stimulus we can all get behind, right? That's what I'm thinking. You know, uh, in other words, maybe maybe that's all we really need here to uh, take us through this uh, ever more surreal political landscape that we've all occupied now. Um, I can't help but feel like it's building towards some even stranger outcome. Yeah, this has been one of the most bizarre weeks I can remember, which is such so weird to say because I think every week has been the most bizarre week. So I don't maybe that's not saying much because who knows what next week's gonna be like. But this is you're right, totally surreal mm-hmm. set of circumstance we're in. It's it's yeah, it's brain explodingly bizarre what's happening right now. I think Lewis Carroll must be spinning like a top in his grave yeah. going, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Exciting, though, too. I mean, the, the most excitement I've had in months is is checking social media to see which horrific member of this administration had COVID next. Um, <laughs> I d- firmly disagree with the idea that we cannot celebrate these horrible people having bad stuff happen to them. I think we need to celebrate. <laughs> There's nothing that we can celebrate, celebrate more than, than people getting comeuppance who... Our system is not very good at actually uh, making pay for their for their sins. So uh, this is the kind of direct punishment that I can get behind. Wait a minute. So you're saying that um, Kylie McEnany, <laughs> sure. the press secretary, yep. she's she's not in your thoughts and prayers as we speak. My thoughts and prayers are vast, but no, it does not include. Okay, Kaylee, Kylie, Kylie. Yeah. Well, listen. Uh, Thank you for opening up that door because, you know, I guess what I want to say is I'm not I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to be embarrassed anymore for acknowledging that I found this to be absolutely riveting. You know, uh, I'm going to make a a reference later to a reality TV show called The Bachelor. And I am embarrassed about that. I admit that I know what that is. No shame. you know, I got to come. I got to come no clean shame. because everything that that I saw Trump doing this weekend it reminded me of that show at least to what I recollect. Uh, but I'm not going to, yeah, no more apologies. I'm coming out. Uh, this is just far too unprecedented not to come clean and avow, yeah, I want to see what's going to happen. He's, he's, he is a showman, huh? Who would have who would have predicted he would get himself sick and then become a super spreader? <laughs> um, I, was, I was thinking the other day, so in the Nixon administration, the Saturday, my, Saturday Night Massacre, Right. That's where everybody mm-hmm. got fired. Mm-hmm. I feel like right. the Trump administration is is filled with the kind of people who would were aware maybe of the idea of the Saturday Night Massacre, but took it too literally. 
decide that we need it. We need it. We need that for <laughs> ourselves. Actual massacre. Yeah. <laughs> From what I understand, that's pretty much what it looks like over in the White House right now. If you can imagine your your, your favorite, so bad that it's good, uh, dystopian or post apocalyptic, you know, sci fi movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking maybe Cormac McCarthy. Yep. You know, The Road. Um, from what I can tell, that's what it looks like over in the White House right now. Well, you might have seen this, but it's been posted in a variety of places. But combined, I think it was Vietnam, Australia, and one other. Oh, and, and maybe it was Taiwan, actually. I think it was Taiwan. Those three countries, which have a population of, I think, in total, like 100 some million, had fewer positive <laughs> cases in the last week than the White House did. <laughs> that's when you know your country's going great. And I tell you, that's some quality TV watching, you know. And I'm like you. I'm, I'm checking the news feeds. I need to pace myself, I think, because, uh, you know, the figures to go on at least for three more weeks or, you know, what do we have until the election, right? Yeah. Um, although, although, who knows? I mean, all bets are off. Listen, I and that's the point of today's episode in a way. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make it clear here in a bit, folks, while we're calling it, it Deadwood. We think that's absolutely the right uh, name for the episode, but it— it all had me thinking, you know, watching Trump over the weekend had me thinking about, you ready? Systems. Good word. Yeah. And normally not a word that would get anybody really all too excited. <laughs> you know, not the, not, again, not the sexiest. Uh, but yeah, systems. And we're going to have an interview later uh, today, uh, or in the episode, I should say, uh, with a couple of our uh, HAG alumni uh Kyle Fitzpatrick and, and Elise Robeson are going to come back and join us and talk about what it's like on the front lines of the teaching apocalypse. And they both teach government. And I know, Josh, that when I took government in school, I'm pretty sure they told us that our government represented a very specific and special kind of system. And they called it, uh, see if you can, you can vouch for me on this, they called it a system of checks and balances. Did they not? They did. And not only did they tell us that, but apparently all of our students have gotten that because that's that's one of the pieces of information <laughs> I think more students have than maybe any other single piece of information. More people know checks and balances <laughs> than know like the name of the of Columbus's ships or something like that. So it, th- that has gotten through for whatever reason. That that idea has gotten through to our, our students. Yeah, I agree. And, and I remember it. You know, in other words, it's one of those things that uh, finds its way into your... Uh, you know, your long term memory or something. And and uh, and so there's three. The, we'll, we'll ignore the preposition. There's three basic words there. System. Uh, OK, uh, <laughs> preposition and a con- and a connector. And take those out. We got three words. We got system checks, balances. Now, I want to ask you, much like if this were your civics exam, OK, a multiple choice. How many of those three fundamental constructs has the administration of Donald Trump honored? It feels Take I, your time. I feel a little bit like Voltaire with the Holy Roman Empire, right? Is, <laughs> yeah. It is neither Holy Roman nor an empire. The system of checks and balances is neither a system, a check, or a balance. <laughs> so are you saying he's honored, what, maybe two out of three? I, I, I may, it, if you put and in there, maybe the and. <laughs> so zero out yeah. of three? Let's go zero. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah. So, what do we make of this? And we're gonna we're gonna have our guests talk about that later. But I tell you, that moment 
uh, the the ride around you know the armored uh, SUV mm-hmm. uh, around uh, what I imagine are like the Caesar's uh, Palace fountains out in front of Walter Reed. <laughs> you know, did a did a did a lap around the fountains uh, to wave to, to to his supporters, and he's peering out of what looks like a little tiny you know a kind of a porthole in a maybe a submarine or yep. something. Uh, you know, in, in, inside this armored vehicle, uh, and and it's just gotten you know more more bizarre. The the Flying in, I can tell you those Marine helicopters, you know, having lived in Washington, D.C., everybody in, in, in the district knows when that bad boy's flying in to the White House. So comes in on the, you know, the Marine Corps helicopter, presidential helicopter, gets out, you know, strides up. Uh, and this had me laughing, Josh, for reasons I can't adequately explain. Something called the Truman Balcony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walked up the stairs. It, it sort of looked like maybe the escalator at Nordstrom or something, but... It was the Truman balcony, the way they had it lit, yeah. you know. I, I was I was surprised there wasn't a guy playing piano down mm-hmm. below, you know. Um, and he stood there, and the lighting was such, and that's what reminded me of the time I watched the movie, uh, or the show, sorry, the reality show called The Bachelor, you know. And I thought, he hit his mark. I mean, they probably had a little patch of tape there on the ground, you know, where the lighting would be just so. You know, and the dramatic, you know, pulling off of the mask. Now, as many have, have suggested, he also seemed to be laboring. Oh, boy. You know, to breathe. Yeah. But what do we make of that? I mean, is that for effect, too? Or? No, I don't think that was because showing weakness at all for him is like the worst, the worst possible thing. So I imagine that was I mean, that's the only moment where I was like, oh, God, I, I only want the worst for this person. But even that makes me feel a little like, oh, God, that's just looks so laborious to, to do that kind of stuff. And. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, I wonder. Do you think President uh, Harry Truman ever envisioned that the that the balcony name for him would be used in such a manner? <laughs> how could he? Um, how could you know? How could you predict? Well, this, I mean, right? you really did hit it on the head that the, like the reality show aspects of it. Like that's that's what he's good at, right? That's the only reason he's relevant, really, is because he happened to be good at being on a reality show, right? If if not for the reality show, he would have mm-hmm. been this obscure like reference to the 80s basically right that's what he was uh before he got on the, on that show so you know it's almost like always he retreats to the thing that that makes him most comfortable in this, this case it's this bizarre reality show world um that now we are all forced to live in because uh he's he's yeah, the one in the White House. yeah and i tell you you know you think of, of his tv show the apprentice um but the one I always thought of, because I remember seeing him one time when he was still just the Donald, mm-hmm. you know, and not president, was uh, the you know professional wrestling. I think he was tight with the McMahon family that yeah, runs still the, is. The, the the pro wrestling, the WWE, and and you, you, you're hard pressed to find um, a kind of garish theater than you, you know professional wrestling, right? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially the appeal of it. And I thought. You know, given how fabulously successful that's been, you know, in American popular culture, that that you know Trump maybe had that in mind as well. You know, the belligerence, mm-hmm. the kind of bullying, and and look, and getting back to this idea of, of system checks balances, you know, it, it's hard to remember, but you know, if we go back maybe a few dozen calamities ago, um, back to uh, January. <laughs> This this was a president who was impeached, was he not? I I, I seem to remember that. I'm not. I got to check my sources because that was, that does feel. like... Would you look that up for yeah. me? <laughs> Hit up Wikipedia real quick. 
So typically, one who is impeached, and there have been, you know, a few, as we know, um, uh, four, I guess, exactly. Uh, or Nixon technically resigned before uh, being impeached. So we'll, uh, we'll say, I think, three. My bona fides are resting. Yeah, seriously. Uh, assessment. But anyway, uh, the typically one who would be impeached uh, would be considered perhaps one who has no particular regard for checks or balances or any system therein. Is that fair to say? You might think so. I mean, you, yeah, you think the credibility might, might be lost a little bit. I guess that wasn't, I don't know if that was the case for Clinton. Maybe the, that impeachment was seen as such a farce that it didn't have that effect. But uh, yeah, you would, if the system, if there was a system, and if the system was working as it was supposed to, you would think that, that would, it would have the effect that you suggested. Yeah, and I think in Clinton's case, if you'll allow me this, the system that he was disdainful of was the one called marriage. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the sanctity thereof, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, so there's different systems at play here because, as we know, the Donald, no great respecter of that system either. Uh, in fact, can you think of a system that uh, Donald Trump has ever been particularly uh, beholden to or reverent of? I mean, he no, not not a system. There's definitely things that he he wants that he he kind of idealizes. Like he wants, you know, the to be part of that that uh, elite Manhattan society, right? That's kind of a big part of his biography. Mm-hmm. Is this this mm-hmm. rich person from the outer boroughs trying to make it big in Manhattan? But no, I mean maybe the uh, the system of of uh, of uh, tax write offs seems like that. <laughs> well, that's what I think. Mike Pence is supposed to argue in the debate, uh, which is uh, tomorrow evening, I believe, as we speak uh, today, record today. It'll be passed by the time the episode comes out. But that 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 Pence's job is to uh, make the argument that we ought to allow Donald Trump for his ingenuity in essentially, you know, beating the game, as it were, of taxes, mm. um, that he he wasn't a professional politician, he was a businessman. And then and that's, you know, that's that's the object, right? Right. You know, and so uh, it, it brings into question here, you know, which which systems are, are are we supposed to be honoring, you know, because again, I don't I don't remember quite ever getting that lesson in the civics class. Uh, but but Pence, in effect, is is right. In other words, as abhorrent as it might seem within the system of government, within what we call a system of business, a capitalist system, then then beating the game. You know, it's like when my, my boys were playing, you know, video games and they, they had what were called cheats. I don't yeah, know yeah. if your guys yeah, yeah. have ever used those. And I was appalled at first because like, hey, you're taking the, you're taking the <laughs> the object of the game away. And you're just using the cheats to get you know, whatever astronomical score you want to get and, and taking myself seriously as a parent in those days, you know, I think I actually tried to suggest you guys can't use the cheats. Wow. <laughs> Authoritarian. Well, you know, but boy, the, the miles we've all traveled since then. So, you know, in some systems, you know, the, the cheat is is welcomed, even if if only, you know, implicitly. And I'd say something like taxes. I was thinking, you know, the example I was thinking with Donald Trump because I thought you were going in this direction for a second was toward the country club. Yeah. You know, was his golf playing yeah. because do you, would you guess that Donald Trump cheats at golf? Oh my God. Definitely. Right. That's not even a question. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but there you sort of half expect it, you know, like, 
yeah, everybody cheats at golf or something. I mean, not that I, you know, would necessarily just give into that as a sportsman, you know, but but there is this sort of subterranean notion that, you know, cheating is okay. So here's here's what I want to say. All right. Is that what we consider systems, particularly systems of government, systems of law, um, and and taught to revere and and taught to believe, you know, work according to rules, and that there are, you know, what sanctions against you know trying to cheat those rules, etc. You know, I'm not talking. I'm talking about golf. I'm not even talking about marriage. I am talking about this system of checks and balances, you know, that that is enshrined in that kind of honored origin. We call them founding fathers, after all. Am I, uh, you know, is there not a biblical intonation there? Mm-hmm. This is something we're supposed to revere. But here's what I want to say, and, and I'm going to let you take it, but that the system, it turns out, that we learned about in civics class, that we've been taught to revere, hell, that we even pledge allegiance to, in the end, what we've learned, including in the last week, but certainly over the course of years here, what we've learned is that it all looks a lot more like one of our very favorite TV shows, Deadwood. So if you haven't seen Deadwood, fantastic show. So good that I can't bring myself to watch the last season of it because then it will be over. But um, that's true <laughs> fandom, right? Uh, it's, it's, you know, this fictionalized version of, of this historical moment, the founding of the city of Deadwood, South Dakota. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the show ends up being about is the creation of community, uh, the coming of systems to those communities and the people who are working for and against those, those systems in many ways. Um, and so, uh, you know, while it's a show about these individuals and, and the, the relationships and all these kind of things, there also is this undercurrent of this encroaching uh, organization that's coming, you know, so that the arrival of of telegraph lines, the arrival of, you know, actually government officials and government. And so the clip we want to show you, uh, have you listened to, is uh, one of the, the key figures in the show, Al Swearingen, speaking about the coming of government. It'll be over in a couple of hours. We've got to form a government for the settlement. Who does? Us. You and me. Come to me in a vision, you stupid bastard. Man, I got to tell you, Josh, that... You're right. That show is almost too good to finish. And when it occurred to us that much of what we're, you know, what we're witnessing, you know, in, uh, through the contemporary window here, the history outside our window, and what we were talking about even last week uh, in our uh, episode that dealt with the early modern era, you know, we're, we're talking about systems that essentially are created you know, by by accretion or something, you know, by by fits and starts, uh, by a kind of uh, almost improvisational quality. And, and as they begin to cohere these systems, you know, from their very rough and rowdy beginnings, like in Deadwood, you know, as they as they start to cohere, they they take on a, you know, almost a sense of timelessness and rationality and you know, that somewhere, you know, we're honor bound to understand it. But man, you know, that show brilliantly, because it really plays off the idea of the American West, mm-hmm. right? In the in the Wild West. And that kind of, but it's such, these are these are anti-heroes. Um, Ian McShane's character, Swearingen, is, is an anti-hero for the age, wouldn't you say? One of the best, definitely. I mean, before that term was thrown around so loosely and, and everybody was an anti-hero and everything. 
Right. Um, yeah, he really stood. You know, he re- was really that character, and, and was given the the chance to kind of, uh, you know, monologue a lot, and in those monologues, kind of get across this this whole philosophy of of order and civilization, and and anti order and anti civilization as well uh, that the show was so focused on. And it's become almost anthropological in its exactitude now of, yeah <laughs> for me right. at least of of actually showing what these systems how they're created and what the you know the sort of the major impulses are that that come to define them early on in fact uh it was after we did last week's broadcast that i found what i thought was was too good you know uh, a, an example you know because look folks you know, we're, I hope you appreciate this, you know, the, the, the freshness of these episodes. A lot of this we're doing in real time <laughs> in response to things that happen in real time. We're going back. We're digging through, you know, the literature. We're finding connections. And that's really hugely uh, vital for both Josh and I. But, you know, it happened again, you know, uh, one of these Hag Miracles. So I found this uh, piece in a book that I've been reading called Hubs of Empire, the Southeastern Low Country and British Caribbean. Don't let the title scare you. It's by Matthew Mulcahy. Uh, And Mulcahy is talking about the founding of uh, Barbados. current day Washington, Hmm. D.C. in some ways. And I think you'll get that point as he talks about the English sugar colony. This little, again, this little, um, you know, speck of dust in the, the, you know, the most southern part of the the Antilles, the West Indies, uh, uh, a little tiny. It's a one-tenth the size of Rhode Island, if that helps you. Um, It's about 160 square miles total, Barbados. But it became the single most profitable uh, single wealthiest uh, British holding in the West Indies throughout, you know, the the age of of, of empire, certainly throughout the early modern age of empire, uh, and it really became the generator. That is this little tiny island, as it became a sugar island, it became the generator of of British empire generally throughout the Greater Caribbean, including the North American mainland. So, uh, the author, the historian here, Mulcahy, makes all these you know great connections between. You know what happened in, on, on Barbados and what happens in Jamaica and what happens in South Carolina and Virginia, the Chesapeake and all the connections, even with New England, um, you know, which we always insist on sort of wrapping in a, in a cloak of you know Puritan piety. But really, you know, John Winthrop and the boys up in New England, as pious as they may have been, they they were riding the Barbados gravy train. Josh, they were they were tying their economies. Uh, in the case of New England, you know they're growing wheat and corn, and they're harvesting fish, codfish, and they're all they're selling it, you know, to this this plantation colony of Barbados, with its skyrocketing population of enslaved Africans. You know, it's one of those places where you're going to get this disparity in the population, right, mm-hmm. between enslaved Africans and and Englishmen. It's going to be like eight to one, ten to one. You know, African enslaved African to English, so uh, they they used every available arable um, you know plot of land on Barbados to to grow sugar. So they could they literally couldn't feed themselves by by food that they they would there grow. 
And so, you know, uh, Winthrop and the, and the Boston, um, you know, uh, merchants uh, figure out a way to begin supplying Barbados with, you know, good New England wheat and corn and codfish. And, and so, um, you know, they're, they're creating, in, in effect, a kind of system, a plantation system of economies that, that are all, you know, intended to be mutually supportive. Okay, so that, as I should remind our listeners, that, that's essentially the genesis of the system that our own nation state, uh, our own legal and political and economic system derives from. That's the genealogy that will eventually give rise to, you know, the United States on the North American mainland. And and again, by that point, by the time we get the national narrative, you know, we're 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 retrofitting the story to make it all seem as if it were created almost by some kind of intelligent design, right? Like the stuff we learned as kids in the civics class about how this was a, a you know a miracle at Philadelphia that created this constitution, this sort of you know almost divine system of political governance, but. Okay, so with our theme of Deadwood, I want to look at this example then from early Barbados, where he talks about how it all came together, and then I'll, I'll let you uh, weigh in on, on, on what you think about that. So it, it begins with one of those English privateers that I've talked about before, a kind of a pirate for hire by the name of Captain John Powell, who visited the island, and I'm, and I'm reading now from O.K.'s book, visited the island in 1625, while returning from Brazil on behalf of Sir William Cortine, a wealthy London merchant with trading interests in Spain, Portugal, West Africa, and the Americas. Unlike St. Christopher, which parenthetically was one of the other smaller uh, islands of the West Indies, Barbados was uninhabited, although there was evidence that the Carib Indians had lived there or hunted there in an earlier period. By the time Powell shows up, it's uninhabited. Powell's report on the island encouraged Cortine to finance an expedition led by Powell and his brother Henry. Uh, okay, so that's what happens. That's the impulse now for England to see Barbados as a potential colony. Cortine was not the only one interested in the island. And while his men were the first to arrive, he had not secured the necessary legal title to the island. Before he had done so, Charles I, that is the sovereign uh, king of England, granted a favorite courtier, the Earl of Carlisle, proprietary title to Barbados and the Leeward Islands. As proprietor, Carlisle had the power to appoint governors and ruling councils and to collect rents and taxes from the colonists. With letters patent in hand, Carlisle appointed Thomas Warner, governor of St. Kitts, and Charles Wolverston, governor of Barbados. Wolverston sailed to Barbados in April of 1628 with 70 colonists to assert Carlisle's patent. Before that group left, Cortine had enlisted the aid of Philip Herbert, Earl of Montgomery, and later Pembroke, and together they managed to secure a separate patent from Charles, naming him proprietor. Parenthetically, the author notes, Charles was notoriously inattentive to such matters. One Barbadian governor claimed he signed whatever paperwork was put in front of him without reading it. But as a result, Barbados now had two competing proprietors and two separate settlements 
during the late 1620s. Cortine's men at Holtown and Carlisle's men at what became Bridgetown. Violence ensued as the two sides dueled for control of the island, taking turns raiding each other's settlements and capturing the opponent's governor. Well, what do you think, Josh? Divine plan? It's all part of the plan. Rational, yeah, right? <laughs> well, I, rational system making? What do you think? I mean, it's so funny. You know, talking about this, like, just disastrous, stupid, chaotic, uh, you know, colonization effort. Because, you know, what's, what we tend to do in history is we then, how things turn out, we then project backwards. We've talked about that a lot. And so, you know, the, the, the chaotic nature of this, the, the lack of planning, the, the, the incompetent king who's just signing every paper that comes in front of him. Well, that all doesn't need to be talked about because ultimately Barbados becomes, you know, the, the wealthiest of mm -hmm. these colonies. And, and by the way, it probably is worth mentioning that all the richest colonies of this early modern world are now some of the poorest countries in the world, right? That like, mm. um, and that's probably not a coincidence, is it? No. Um, no, and it's a great example of, of how these systems from the very beginning essentially uh, plan for wild disparities of something like wealth and political power. Right. Well, and I was, it was built. In. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was kind of thinking of this, you know, getting back to our our president that, you know, when he won, won in 2016, there emerged this kind of narrative that he's some kind of political genius. Like, you know, he's untrained, but he has this this uh, just inborn political genius and the reality is, no, there's no genius there. It's it's just as chaotic as the founding of, of Barbados, right? But because ultimately he won in 2016, then we project backwards this idea, oh, it was all part of this plan to begin with. There's no plan with Donald Trump. There's no plan with the settlement of the of Barbados. It was a bunch of circumstance and accident and incompetence and chaos that happened to lead to a particular outcome. Right. And and by the way, we tend to hear about it because it had a particular outcome. But, you know, one thing you find when you look in the early uh, modern era, for example, is just how many of these uh, settlements uh, failed. Right. And, and you know, we, we in the United States, we think of something like the Roanoke colony. But Roanoke was just one really of scores of efforts to create these, um, you know, these settlements, you know, pred predicated on, you know, sort of cash markets and, you know, cash crops, and that kind of thing. Uh, and a lot of them fail. So the fact that some of them don't in some kind of Darwinian, you know, struggle that some of them come through, uh, as you suggest, you know, we, we create this ro retrofitted story about it that makes it seem as if it were, you know, all part of the, the genius and guile, you know, of, of, of English empire that then translates into, you know, United States. Um, you know, nation systems or something. Mm -hmm. And we cherry pick a couple of, you know, uh, homey little examples like the Pilgrims, you know, or, or, you know, Plymouth Rock or something to kind of give it a, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, what almost sort of sacred, you know, sort of endowment. But, but, but really, you know, what John Winthrop, for example, one of those Puritans, what he was most interested in is that his son who went to Barbados, Henry Winthrop, and sent him some of the tobacco leaf they were trying to grow initially before they got into sugar there, that uh, the tobacco he sent him wasn't any good. And John Winthrop was irate. You know, he said this, that nobody's going to want to buy this tobacco. This is terrible tobacco. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're not used to thinking of of the man who, who coined the phrase city upon a hill. You know, in, in, in exactly those terms, are we? In other words, uh, we, we think that maybe he'd taken off his stern Puritan hat 
for a moment to do to run the numbers on Barbados tobacco and found that uh, you know that found that it was wanting or something and and so yeah we retrofit the stories but if we look at the granular you know actual uh, history of them we see that they often proceeded through you know all kinds of unplanned uh, you know um, expedients uh, decisions made in the moment, you know, self-interest, breakdowns, disconnects, uh, occasional, you know, hitting the bullseye and by and by erecting something like a system. And I mean, you know, the serious thing about Barbados, I mentioned earlier, is it becomes this anchor, you know, of the English Empire and has enormous influence. So, you know, for example, South Carolina, you know, is going to basically co copy the, the Barbados model. And what that means is, you know, a huge and growing population of enslaved Africans, a small, incredibly elite, you know, landowning class of, of planters. Um, and in, in many other ways, this, this system that is fomented as a result comes to, you know, eventually crystallize in something we give a name to. We call it capitalism. It receives its own kind of gospel turn, you know, the, the gospel of wealth, as Andrew Carnegie uh, later called it. Um, but uh, we have to look past those things if we're going to understand why the system that we see now, a system that Donald Trump at every turn has shown nothing but ultimate disdain for, you know, like he just like he cheats in golf, he cheats in his <laughs> marriage, you know, he cheats, he cheats in the role of president. And instead of being just crestfallen by this, you know, maybe, maybe it gives us some perspective. I don't know to think that you know, this was dead wood from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're still those two governors on Bar Barbados fighting over who gets the claim. The spoils, yeah, yeah. right? That's one of my favorite lines from American history was Boss Plunkett, right? Yeah. You know, worked for Tammany Hall in New York City in the late 1800s, a, the political machine, the Democratic Party machine. He wrote his little memoir in which he said his favorite line, you know, from the memoir was, I seen my opportunities and I took them. That should be on our coins. That should be on our, right? E pluribus, <laughs> un, unum, no way. We need that. So it's time maybe for a new textbook. I don't know. Or no textbook. Let's ask those who know best, shall we? Our guest today. I see no reason to, uh, to defer any longer. Uh, we're happy, as I said earlier, to have on uh, History Against the Grain uh, a couple of our uh, alums Bonafide uh, frontline, as I say, frontline of the American education system in this age of pandemic and and uh, and utter disarray. Uh, we we got them for you, ladies and gentlemen. A couple of our good friends here uh, to talk about uh, what it's like to be in the virtual classroom. All right, we're excited today to welcome back a couple of HAG veterans. Uh, all the way back in May, we had to check, which is roughly equivalent to about a decade ago in real time, I think. Uh, but uh, here with us today, in fact, uh, from Cupertino High School, uh, are Kyle Fitzpatrick and Elise Robeson. Welcome, guys. Yeah, thank you for having us back. Thanks for having us back. Excited. It's it's so great having you guys back. And uh, I got to reveal to you, this is this is a, a hag secret, never been revealed before, that your episode was episode eight, and that is still <laughs> the most listened to episode of all time. Oh. And so 
we want to think of this like when a struggling sitcom invites like Will Ferrell to come on to kind of goose up ratings. <laughs> That's what you guys are to us. You're, you're our Will Ferrell. Bringing those That'd listeners. be all Elise right there. Nice work, Elise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no pressure. No, no, know? no. Just be yourselves. <laughs> the many, many millions of listeners, that shouldn't make a difference to you. Hey, but, you know, seriously, since we last talked, I guess not much has been going on, huh? Oh, yeah, nothing. Nothing. Just just nothing. boring, boring 2020. <laughs> nothing at all. I mean, I think we're expecting the meteor at any minute now, but <laughs> other than that, everything's fine. Wait, is it expecting or hoping? Which, which one is it? <laughs> I mean, at this point, it could go either way. It depends yeah, on where like... it lands would be my answer. <laughs> I think there's a certain balcony outside the White House that... Uh, <laughs> I try to pinpoint, but uh, yeah. Wow, you know, I think uh, truly, guys, I think the the listeners will be interested just to hear straight from the front lines of American public school education, as it were. You know what what what's it like these days teaching? Uh, you know, in the remote modality, as they say. You know, just kind of broadly speaking, it's. It's actually going better than expected. I'd say that to start. However, it is feeling uh, quite unsustainable at the current rate of um, just the, and I'm definitely speaking speaker viewpoint, but also when talking to the kids, um, just so much Zoom time, right? We're all turning into Zoombies and it is definitely having an effect. And then also kind of the wishes and desires of the community. Um, they kind of want to function as if we're not in the middle of a pandemic. And that creates a lot of kind of angst, I think, for all. Yeah, how does that come across, Kyle? Yeah, it's just the kind of the messaging that's out there. I think the messaging from the top down, the way kind of messaging we get from the administration. So whether it be the superintendent or just even within the school, mm -hmm. um, just kind of, you know, still expecting rigor, not my favorite word, but a uh, word they use, right? expecting us to kind of keep teaching at a high level. But then we're also get a lot of messaging about the social emotional well-being of kids mm. and being very cognizant of that, aware of that. Right. And so it almost feels like it, some cases they want us to be obviously the teacher right, of the classroom, but also kind of social workers and psychologists all in one. And it's quite uh, overwhelming in many regards. I would definitely echo that for sure. I feel as if we're kind of working twice as hard to get half the product. And I was talking with my friend Monique about this just the other day. And it's like this idea of everything is way more intense. Everything is kind of like your first year all over again, where you don't really know what's going to happen. You're relying on this other source to function for you, which is Zoom and the internet. And as soon as that goes, you kind of lose all contact. And so it's almost this weird world where you're in this virtual world dealing with very real people and very real problems. And the show's supposed to keep going in a way that we've produced it before time and time again, but it's just can't happen that way because we are in a pandemic and we have to acknowledge that if we're going to stay sane. That's what I was actually going to ask as a follow-up is, is how much are you acknowledging? Cause I think one of the worst things we can do in this time is pretend like this is just normal, right? To just, I mean, this has been repeated so often, but just not to normalize this kind of stuff, but this is not a normal time. And I think to the extent that we pretend like it's normal, it's, it's dangerous. So how, how much are you guys having to, you know, remind your, your students and, and talk to them about, you know, we're trying to get through this to get whatever you're doing to kind of remind them that this is a crazy time and we should not just act like it's normal. Yeah, I mean, done almost on a daily basis, really, right? That 
Um, Someone, and again, maybe it is me normalizing now that you asked the question, but I've, you know, I'm always telling the kids in breakout rooms, like, look, I'm, I'm going to use these because this is the social space we have, right? And this is the thing that we yeah. are lacking, right? And beyond many things, but in particular, right, that social piece. And I'm like, because they first thing they do in breakout rooms, turn off their videos, mute themselves. Um, and it took lots of weeks of me jumping into those rooms and just say, you know, asking them to have everything on and be on the ready. And like, you know, it's kind of like it's the, it's the unfortunate, you know, uh, deal we have going for us. But let's get to know each other no matter what. That's more important than whatever the topic I propose to you. Like, I really want you all in the room just chatting with each other. Just how's life? Right. I want that to be the focal point. That's that seems really important. Yeah, that's that's great. I would definitely say the communication piece is huge. Like Fitz was saying, making sure that they're talking to each other. I feel like that's such a big part of us teaching, especially social science classes. It's this idea that we are constantly having discussions, constantly seeing what other people think and looking at things together and not being able to do that in real time while talking to these miniature boxes um, is really quite strange. And so we do have to acknowledge um, that this is a pandemic. Things are going to be weird, but one way that we can keep things a little more normal or a little more interactive or a little more human centered is if we are actually engaging with each other and we're acknowledging that it's not going to be to the extent that we've been able to do it before. That's such a good point, Elise. You know, I was um, reminded, I think, when, when you guys started the school year, um, just how social a time in your life high school is, you know, I mean, I suppose like, you know, my wife Jenny says, um, you know, except for the true introverts, you know, the kid who would rather just be in his room, you know, on Reddit all day or something, that, that a lot of these kids are are probably suffering from that, that social deficit, aren't they? I mean, uh, you know, as, as well as you can translate it, and, and it sounds like you guys are doing your level best on Zoom. There's something to be said if you're 15, 16, 17 years old for being able to hang out with your friends, right, on a campus. Yeah, I mean, the, right, the, I, I, obviously, most people directly been impacted by the pandemic, whether it be health or job, right? I really do feel for the kid, the 16 to kind of 22 year old group who's like, it's kind of the age of exploration in lots of ways, right? And, mm-hmm. you, right, and social and kind of learning about yourself just as much as like learning about your honing in your skills and whatever else. And so, yeah, that social piece is, it's quite dramatic. And actually just seeing kids who are extremely outgoing and kind of those, you know, bubbly personalities who we got to know well, specifically in our avid classes. And then to see them back and just how their facial expressions different their whole body language is different just everything right like you can even see that through this you know the little box on the zoom and you know it's just hard like they the confinement that's come with everything right uh is is real and alive and well for these kids and to then assume or add these like oh we're just going to go back to um you know our math and science just we're going to keep things as is as if nothing's going on because we need these skills for next year right is it we're very much seeing the effects on the kids on the other side of things. Most definitely. And I feel like one of the things I've really noticed specifically with the avid kids is they in their mind have a checkbox of all the things that they were supposed to do or experience. And this class in particular missed everything big from their eighth grade year. They missed their junior prom and now they're missing all the major benchmarks mm. of their senior year. And so while they understand that this is a really complex social 
issue that we're dealing with and we're living in a pandemic, they're also still having a hard time grappling with the fact that a lot of their last are not going to be able to be fulfilled as a result of it. And so I do feel like a lot of them are kind of feeling this guilt about missing out on things, but also feeling guilt for how big the situation is in the world and not really knowing how to express that without feeling bad expressing that. Man, and, and just for our listeners, by the way, AVID, which you both teach, is a program that is targeting uh, those who would be the first generation in their family, right, to go to college. Yeah, that would. Yeah, that's the aim and the target group. And also, we were those students since their freshman year. In this case, I took over their sophomore year, so we've we've taught these students for multiple years, so we've got to know them pretty well. So not only we're we going through this this pandemic, but obviously there's been some other things going on as well. Uh, last time we talked to you, we talked mainly around the 1619 project, and it was about three weeks later or so that George mm-hmm. Floyd was murdered which set off this summer of summer of activism, summer of discontent, whatever you want to call it. And now you're back in class and, you know, you're trying to weigh now the needs of the students, the social emotional needs of the students with a curriculum that you're supposed to teach. And I'm, I'm just wondering how much has this past few months of this kind of racial justice movement entered into the way you're teaching, the way you're thinking about your classes, about the content that you're trying to, to get through. Yeah, the, Ooh, that's a big one. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it. Got to aim. Got to aim yeah, high. Yeah, I, I'll do start broad again. At least you can go to this kind of a more focused piece of this. But you know, we've been trying to bring in a lot of social justice into our course over the last you know multiple years since teaching Gov now for my seventh year and trying to kind of keep adding to it. But yeah, after the summer, you know, we all we we were meeting frequently in the summer once a week. And we were like, yeah, we really need to like sharpen our focus. We really need to clean our lens on all of this, um, and especially when it comes down to kind of the Constitution and try to just bring it all the way back to the Constitution for the students. And so that way we can really look at right the words that were written down, the contradictions that were within it at their time and place, and, and then just try to bring it to today, like always bringing history right alive um, today so they can understand it. And I would say that's one area that the kids came in with lots of energy which was great. I would definitely agree with you on that. And I think one thing as teachers, I feel like there's way more awareness of what's happening in the society than we've ever had before, at least from my opinion. And so one of the goals that we've had on our teams is to make sure that we have an anti-racist lens, but also that we are bringing up just the questions of race and having critical race lens questions before we start our decisions. Like who has the power? And what message does this type of communication send? And how do individual experiences differ because of race, race and culture? And what conflicts are present um, between the dominant culture and the non-privileged culture, thinking about it politically, socially, economically, and really offering that lens to the kids for them to grapple with it as we're going through the information. And I really do think that this summer, I mean, it's not the summer of 68 by any means, but we can call it something else later on mm-hmm. <laughs> summer of chaos i do really feel as if the kids are in a place and they are offering more ears and more empathy and more compassion and just in general a more awareness or a willingness to learn about factual history or even why things like george floyd are happening because their biggest question that they have is we don't understand why and of course, there's no simple answer for that. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, what it must be like teaching Gov right now. You know, I, I, I think back to my time as a student in high school, taking 
you know, the, the civics class, U.S. government class. And I had a, a wonderful teacher, Julie Duggar. Let me give her a shout out, Carson City High School. Um, and I was one of those kids that liked it, you know. I mean, because I was a newspaper reader and um, I thought it was just, you know, utterly fascinating. But I was thinking, you know, as I read a piece in The New York Times today, it's a book review, actually, um, uh, by uh, Joe Klein, who's a well-known political writer. And, and uh, he was reviewing a book by this guy, Carlos Lozada, who's the Washington Post book critic, who's just published a book called What Were We Thinking? And it's about the Trump era, you know. And he quotes Lozada, the, the author in there, saying that we've become a society that has forgotten its civics lessons or remembering them still has decided they don't matter. And I wanted to, to ask you guys about this today because, you know, we chatted the other day. Um, I'm trying to think back to whatever passed as our textbook, you know, or the curriculum in the U.S. Gov class. I know we talked about, you know, the fundamentals of the U.S. Uh, federal government, the Constitution, you know, representation, how bills become law. I mean, all those kinds of things. But it occurred to me, and I think I said to you guys the other day, right, that the textbook would have almost no application <laughs> to that, um, you know, that history going on outside our window right now uh, and, and, and during the Trump years generally, would it? I mean, because the things we learn about how government's supposed to work, even the constitutional, you know, process has pretty much been... Um, you know, in one way or another, roundly ignored. I guess I would start with the Merrick Garland a Supreme Court nomination at the end of the Obama reign, but certainly right on through. Uh, so how do you, you know, how do you guys deal with that? That, that? that maybe, and whether you have a textbook or not, I don't know, but, but how do you deal with the fact that what passed traditionally for, you know, U.S. government uh, seems not to exactly apply, let us say, in this time? Well, um, one of the things that we really focused on this year was this idea of power and privilege and taking that from our very first unit of power and privilege and looking at it through the lens of education and seeing how even if they don't realize that they have a form of privilege that they do through being able to sit in a classroom in Cupertino alone, which carries a lot of other things with it. And so, wait, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Sitting in their classroom. No, you said it. There's no editing, so it's in. <laughs> Where they are. And so I think with that being said, um, when you're in a place of privilege and of power, you are automatically experiencing something else that other people aren't experiencing and vice versa. And so with that, in and of itself, with that privilege and that power, your experience gets to miss someone else's. And so when other people are yelling, maybe things like we can't breathe or we need rights, those other people could not even fathom that that happened because of their power and privilege. And so then those people tend to go on to become lawmakers in some instances that are making decisions based off of the information that they know from that space mm -hmm. and really getting the kids to understand the impact that power and privilege has and what happens even when you're not aware of it? And so we brought it down to like the level of something that they would truly understand, which is SAT and ACT testing, right? Like all the kids are concerned about these things. All the kids are concerned about college and really asking them like, 
to what extent is this really something that is fair and the way it's presented when we know that there are prep courses that cost, you know, a couple, like $1,000, that makes this an economic advantage of privilege and power over others. And so really trying to bring this idea down to them on a level that they could pick apart and then apply it to other things. And a lot of them, you could tell they feel a little bit awkward about having these conversations at first online. But I will say that I feel like the kids have opened up more having these conversations than they have in the past. And I do feel like they started challenging the Constitution more when we were talking about it. And they started challenging um, more things that we were bringing to them in Gov this year than they have ever before or at least in my years on Gov and teaching U.S. history. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I was going to ask you, Kyle. I mean, and you, you can pick up your own thread of this, of course, but, you know, when Elise talks about something like privilege and power, I'm pretty sure that wasn't in my U.S. Gov textbook, you know, to any significant <laughs> extent. But it seems like it could be the title of the book now, you know. Um, how's it look to you? Yeah, I mean, we got, uh, I mean, just to go real quick, we, we actually stopped using a textbook years ago. Um, I, I even I want to say 2015. I'm not gonna say it paralleled Trump in his uh, running, but maybe it did. If I have to really dig deeper on that front, but yeah, the ideas of just like that, the nuts and bolts we can get kind of anywhere. So we really just wanted the kids to focus not only on privilege and power, but we also want to think about that role of citizen and the role of government, and then to like also add in those layers of privilege and power. And you know, a lot of it has to do again with that. It has to be a lot with our Cupertino kids in particular, just our, within our demographics that we have, for the most part, a vast majority of our students are first generation. Um, the vast majority of them are quite wealthy and well off. And a lot of times they kind of look at, especially kind of some of this history, especially along um, racial lines, it's kind of like, eh, that was so long ago. And so like not anywhere near our kind of Cupertino bubble that sometimes it's really hard for them to get past their bubble. And so one of our goals in particular this year with the privilege piece was for them to really, first again, as Elise said, like look introspectively so that they can then start understanding and seeing outside of it, right? To clean and clear kind of their vision of what's going on um, so that they can then try to, and at least said they're doing a better job with empathy, but they could, they could really start trying to understand, putting themselves in other people's position to understand how these power dynamics are at play. Most definitely. And one thing uh, that I did notice, we did ask the kids to ask, what would they be willing to give up, knowing that they have privilege? And would they be willing to potentially pay more taxes to make sure that more kids had more opportunities at school? Or would they be willing to sacrifice something in the name of, you know, cleaning up the environment? And a lot of them did say yes. Some of them said no, but the majority of them said they did not know that their parents would be willing to do that. And so kind of them even understanding themselves that they have a different perspective than maybe the other people around them or even the people who they respect that they live with, right? And kind of grappling with that sense too of culturally trying to pick apart, can I disagree and still be respectful? And how does that look? And can I formulate my own ideas so that I can figure out what my role as a citizen is here as a human. Yeah, and the goal of that was, and the bridge with that too was that once you start, if you can do that within like your own self or your own family, your own community, then hopefully you can start learning to ask better questions, but also that you start to ask questions and you start kind of reflecting on, well, what does privilege look 
like on a macro level, right? What does power look like on a macro level? And if we know that there's all these entanglements within it, that we need to start asking the right questions to kind of pull apart, right? That entanglement that we need to ask the right questions to better understand it, to better learn it so that we can move forward. So this is, I love hearing this stuff. It, and But what it kind of brings up for me is something we've been talking about a lot on the on the podcast in general is just the existence of systems, right? That kind of run over everything. And so what, what I'm kind of hearing is that you guys are doing these really cool things in the, in the classroom. You're trying to address these really important issues. You're trying to get your students to think about things that maybe they don't think about it or, or not encouraged to think about at home or, or ask questions that they're not uh, generally asking. But to what extent do you feel like you're trying to do this within a system that's maybe a little hostile to this? Or do you, do you not find that the case? Um, because we've been thinking a lot about curriculum in our, in our history department. Um, and, you know, kind of come to the conclusion that something like Western Civ, like you can have a good Western Civ teacher and you can have a, a, a class that is better at doing Western Civ, but Western Civ is a broken idea, right? And so it's probably better off just to get rid of it. I'm just wondering, have, has this made you think about the curriculum itself a little bit differently? It, it, you know, aside from what you can do in the classroom, like what the curriculum actually looks like, is that our current moment made you kind of think about yeah, that Yeah, well, I first maybe? start by saying I've used my own privilege to kind of tear up what used to exist, um, knowing that I kind of had that the power in place to do that. So I took full advantage of that. <laughs> we kind of started to take over as the team lead. Um, hey, what good is I, privilege if you can't use it to tear something down, you know? Right. You know what I'm saying? And in this exactly. case, I like to think the curriculum that I was at least um, tearing down or taking apart was stuff that was Again, it was too systematic. It was too rote memorization. It was too robotic, right, in the grand scheme of things. And the last thing I want is for my students to come out robotic. Like, they'll, they'll get that enough in their STEM classes. But I really want them, <laughs> like, I just want them to have the ability to think and to process, to ask questions. How many times I've said this year, you guys, a question is just as good as an answer right now. Can you please come up with like some of those. And that is interesting is really difficult for them to come up with good solid questions. Well, so that, but actually kind of gets back to my point because it's, it's amazing that you're doing, but like if, if another instructor was in your class, would the expectation be that they would run the class that way? Or they be, would it just be as, like they'd be stuck in the old curriculum and the old way of doing things? And if that's the case, then it seems like that's an issue in education, right? That it relies on dedicated instructors willing to ask these questions and get their students thinking about these things. Does that seem like a, a problem for you guys? Yeah, I don't think on our team specifically. Um, I don't know if yeah. you disagree with me, Fitz. I feel like um, because we have a small team of three for Gov, okay. um, we are allowed to be a little more rogue. But I do think that that is a general issue um, that pops up on larger teams or even in teams that aren't ready to take steps forward. Right? Because there's a comfortability right. level with being able to confront your own implicit bias to realize like, hey, maybe I've been teaching something in a way that could have been offending people or in a way that I wasn't honoring the full story. And so what do I need to do to rewrite this? And I think that takes a little bit of inside looking and then outside repuzzling to figure things out. And so I don't, Fitz, what do you think? Well, I do, no, I agree with you like on a hard level, right? On hard kind of micro level. And we've been given our principal has kind of given us the leeway to do this um but the i do think as a mm -hmm. on a broader scale um yeah I, I find the school system and the curriculum standards and the california standards that were written in 1998 and haven't really been 
Well, they probably have been touched. I shouldn't say that. But looking at those, they they were so confining and they were so troubling in many regards. Um, and in cases where they needed to be, uh, you know, any any attempt for them to show any kind of, you know, I don't know, thought outside of the Eurocentric model, they were just leaving these very broad strokes, open ended, kind of. I don't know. It, it, the things they were like, absolutely, you. everyone has to learn these things, were all still very Eurocentric and very here's to the point. I used to get into many um, debates with my curriculum leaders back in when I first started teaching and started teaching world history because it would be so frustrating and feeling so confined to have to teach along these standards because we had this test that was coming up right at the end or in the spring. And, and right. what was lovely last year was the fact that that test went away. Uh, at least because of the pandemic. <laughs> and I'm hoping that's something that continues because we are going to be in a budget shortfall and we could save a lot of money if we didn't give that thing out. Wow, I like that. You know, the upside of the pandemic <laughs> is that you get, to, uh, you get to get rid of some things that weren't ever really working too well. That's, a, that's another uh, fertile conversation. I, w- I want to double back just quickly, though, Elise. You know, this idea that you guys are talking about uh, in terms of how you are approaching curriculum and and uh, trying to look outside that um, that narrow frame that Fitz was you know was talking about you told me you're taking a couple of uh, continuing ed classes from Stanford right um, maybe you can tell us about that yeah I'm taking two classes right now one's called election 2020 and I'm sure you can imagine um, what that feels like on Monday nights for an hour and a half <laughs> and it's been quite engaging and it's really getting me to think of things differently. And last night was on the power of technology um, and kind of how we're thinking in these complete echo chambers and kind of what that's doing to us as a society and how the pandemic's exacerbating that even more. And the other class I'm taking is called Black Studies Matter. And it is a literature-based class and we are studying what these professors have deemed to be the most critical books that you need to learn um, from the black perspective. And so for me, continuing to grow and learn is such an important part of me doing what I can to grow and learn as an educator. And it really is making me take a step back and look at what do I really want these kids to be talking about and knowing. And like Fitz was saying, the California standards are so huge. I mean, it's like a checklist, y'all. We couldn't get through them if if we tried for history. And so it's set up for it to be this kind of, I don't want to say rote memorization, but it's set up for them to really check boxes, but not really engage in the learning. And so I had to really take a step back and go, okay, how can I change this stuff for them to engage in learning? How I've not really touched on the lost cause and I know it's there, but I'm not doing a good job with this with my kids. And so let's reverse, let's take this, let's rewind it back and let's get them talking about things that are important. I'm talking about things and listening to lectures that are important to me. I need to be offering my students that same type of engagement or those same type of opportunities to engage at least so that their brains can start thinking outside of a box and also so that their brains can think in a way that it's like, hey, there might not be one answer to this. We can discuss this and that's okay because we're building a lifelong skill of being able to discuss with people and we don't always have to agree and I think that's something that as we become more and more polarized, we're not really seeing that, that really happening where it's like, all right, let's have a conversation without completely disrespecting each other. And in my room, I set the precedent because I go to these lectures and I watch people disagreeing um, in a way that still works and they can still function in a conversation. So keep your respect, keep your perspective, but you need to be respectful so that we can continue to learn and discuss and grow together 
in a way that us isn't us just checking boxes or isn't us just looking and seeing what the book says, which we all know how corrupt textbooks are. Like, let's not even get into that, like indoctrination 101. And so really trying to use that as my advantage and hoping it's working. It's just so crazy. I mean, because, you know, what you just, just said about textbooks, like that extent to which you're trying to do your thing and there's all these things set up in the curriculum and, and the textbooks that you're kind of trying to fight against, right? That you, you're almost putting shackles on before you go in the classroom. And then you've got to, throughout the semester, work around these shackles they place around you to actually get students to think about, you know, what's really important and how things actually function and all these kind of things. Um, is that is that frustrating or do you feel that or are you guys feeling pretty liberated from those shackles at this point? At this point, I would say liberated, but I definitely felt that yeah. way in the past. I definitely feel liberated. Um, and both U.S. and Gov, we opted to not give out the textbook. And when I was teaching world history, I don't know if you did this as well, Fitz, but we actually used the textbook to show bias in it at one point. That's amazing. And yeah. so we've, we do use the textbook sometimes in ways to show kind of where it's shortcomings are but in no way can it be used as a main text and i think we should cut them all <laughs> rework the system so that we can get some quality reading in there like 1619 that's our textbook right like that's we're using that mm -hmm. as our textbook now because it has so much information and it's historical right. and it's truth and that has value to it in and of itself hey fitch you mentioned right. to me in fact speaking of 1619 that you've been um sort of, uh, you know, working in, in some of that uh, uh, material. I think you said you were talking about this idea of patriotic history, which, uh, you know, my partner Josh has done a lot to promote, uh, of course, uh, on behalf of... Uh, <laughs> it's my major. But uh, maybe could you share with us a little bit of what, what's going on uh, in your class there? Yeah, so we had him read the... Just this past week, we had him read the 1619 introduction. Um, and Nicole Hannah Jones talks about that in the beginning, right? Talks about her her dad's relationship or and her take on the flag, the fact that he was flying a flag in the front yard and that, that patriotism and how she always saw that quite different than her dad and having to kind of reconcile, come to understand it. And so, yeah, we were trying to, as part of these first few units, getting the kids think privilege, power, think about this. We also talked about framing and we were talking about that, this idea of how um, like why, why is patriotism, which is meant to be this, or could be meant to be a unifying force, feels like this very much a dividing force that that one group who feels like they have a control over the term. And a simple kind of thing I had the kids do was just uh, use Google and type in um, patriotic songs. And right away, the first thing you get on the Google page is, and I had the kid, I said, okay, what genre are you seeing? Let's put it in the chat and let's have a conversation. And you know, very quickly, they're all like, oh, it's country. Clearly, it's country. Like, why wouldn't it be country? Of course, it's country. Right? And just having those conversations, <laughs> like, well, why? Why is that the music choice? Why is that the genre that pops up in Google that Google's then trying to force upon us? Like, how is that patriotic music when we know there's actually much more kind of homegrown genres of music that are out there? Like, it didn't. So, just even those kind of simple dialogues and trying to get the kids to kind of understand. Right, the symbolism behind the flag and then who's trying to control it, who's framing it, right? And then we even can look at music because we've been starting every class with some some music for the day to try to frame the day, right? And just having that, just it was just an interesting conversation, especially when many of them were like, of course it is country, it was a very kind of aha moment. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, 
I don't think there's any shortage of of what sounds to me like uh, you know really solid, provocative, thought-provoking um, you know material passing between you and your students these days. And uh, you know, as we said at the outset of the program today, you know you're faced with the additional challenge of making it all work online and and remote uh, via remote education, that sort of thing. But nevertheless. Uh, regardless, yeah, I would say this is some, you know, very dynamic uh, work you guys are doing. It makes me want to sit in your class, you know, and and uh, and be a part of that good energy, uh, which is, I guess, uh, maybe, huh, Josh, where we leave you today is, is give you both the chance to kind of say, uh, you know, how do you feel about the state of education going forward? Are you guys optimistic? Uh, are you, are you, you still got your edge? Are you enthusiastic? You, you think there's still work to do? I'm, Ooh. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Ten words or less. Oh, that's going to be hard. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't think it's, at the rate it's going, I'm even worried about the sustainability piece. But I do think if, Given if the right people who are uh, in power, if you will, and the right people who have the privilege, if we can really get them to see a lot of what what this has done is it's shined a light on a lot of the issues and the problems right that we have, and uh, I think uh, it it shines a light on you know issues or potential problems we have with maybe community buy-in in school and education. Um, we see, again, what what is that parents really want? What are they seeking? Are they really wanting the learning that's taking place and the thinking that's taking place that we can actually do within Zoom? Or do they want more just a place to, for their child to go and sit? Uh, or are they really just wanting the socialization? So I think you know, there is a, it's bringing to light a lot of, I guess, cost factors, right? Uh, opportunity cost and those kind of conversations that I really hope that those in charge and those in power can really reflect on it and we can really start honing in and maybe kind of trimming those things that cost a lot of money and maybe aren't necessarily worth our time in terms of the value of thinking and learning. And in particular, I'm referencing those state tests. I would definitely echo everything that Fitz said. And uh, the one thing that I, I really think of is I think a lot of people are getting away from the fact that we're teaching humans and we're teaching humans that are not like their, their children. And so I think with the intensity that can sometimes come with our area and with the expectations, we forget simply that they are humans that just need to be respected, cared about and checked in on. And I think if we can make sure in education that we always know that students are people before they're students, um, I think we'll be a lot better off. However, I do think systemically there is a larger issue that's pushing a narrative of STEM only specifically, or even changing schools into STEM-like COG systems where there's so many STEM courses offered and like in comparison, the ratio to other courses being offered is not even there, right? Or there's maybe a two or three options. And so we're automatically with this system setting up kids to think that there's not value in the social sciences. There's not value in the arts. There's not value in humanities because of that. And so I think as education moves forward, we need to be really careful to be inclusive and and make sure that we are not placing our own bias in what we are then offering to the community and also standing up for what we truly believe in and know is right as educators rather than letting the community decide what they think is best for us versus what we actually know has worked 
and will help these students grow to be skilled, well-rounded individuals that can be great citizens and humans later on. And so I hope that answers your question. Well, that makes me me feel more optimistic. I mean, hearing this, the stuff you guys are doing in the classroom and your approaches and your the kinds of questions you're asking, I mean, ultimately the, the idea would be that this is gonna be a generation of students who are more attuned to these issues, who are more ready to discuss big things, um, who are less tied down to these traditional narratives. Um, we need we need a lot, lots more of you guys. You're here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, listen, thank you both once again. Uh, Lise Robinson, Kyle Fitzpatrick for being part of the HAG alumni group now. Uh, we'd like to check <laughs> in with you from time to time. Um, you know, just to see what the, you know, the latest uh, tsunami, let's say, has brought, you know. Um, well, I don't know what we're going to do when things go back to the status quo, you know, and there isn't a, a world-shaking, catastrophic uh, event looking a square in the face. But uh, I'm, I'm like Josh. I'm, I'm really confident that as long as we are living in these fraught times where uh, our education system's in good hands. So thanks, thanks a lot. Thank you for having us. That was so great having Kyle and Elise back on. Um, it's crazy how long ago it was when they were first on. It was in many ways a different world back in May when they were they came on. Um, even though we were already in pandemic, we already, obviously Trump was still president, but but hearing back from them and, and what they're doing, you know, to make their classrooms, I, as I think Elise said, you know, about humans, I think that's the key thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for us mm-hmm. as well, you know, as much as we're separated from by these screens between us and our students, um, there is this importance of, of continuing to see the people in our class, classes as individuals each with their own concerns their own needs their own pressures their own stresses um, and I thought they both spoke really wonderfully to that one of the things I was thinking about and I, I you know I did ask about this but it's something that I continue to think about even after the interview is just the challenge of, of education is that there is this thing we call the educational system and and that system is a enormous one first of all um, and you know as as, as you know and uh, as your wife Jenny has dealt with as well, it is a system that's not always so friendly to to individuals who want to do their own thing. Well, you know, and that's what systems do, right? You know, is is they create a template for behavior of of rules, you know, of, of regulations. Uh, and yet, the job we do, you know, the job that that Jenny does, that Elise and Kyle, and you know, all educators do, ultimately. You know, is is a very uh, what would you say a kind of you know very personal project. Yeah. Uh, as as much as we try to systematize, you know, even teaching and curriculum and those kinds of things, you know, I I just ask our you know our listeners, you know, to think back on their their own education. Who do you remember? You know, from school. Think back to high school. Uh, you know, elementary school, college, whatever. You know, who who do you remember? And and particularly, you know. Uh, those those folks hope, hopefully have somebody right you know who inspired you along the way, and and I'm I'm guessing that most of us would would probably acknowledge that the, that the reason those people were inspiring is because they had some particular kind of uh, be it unique or personal energy or stamp 
that they put on their instruction. Yeah, that's a great, really great point because, you know, I, I've not surveyed anybody on this, but I imagine that the people who had the worst experiences in school, I mean, just in terms of education, not even talking about social stuff, but just in terms of education, the people with the worst experiences probably never saw school as anything but a system. Whereas those who had better experiences with school probably had those individuals that really they were able to make connections with and able to kind of be inspired by and that sort of thing. And that's that, that's that really tough balance of being an educator, certainly at our level, but, but I think even more so at the secondary and primary levels as well, is that you know it, the system relies so much, right? For the system to function, it relies so much on a set of individuals who are particularly dedicated, uh, who are willing to be those martyrs. You know, this, this, uh, we see this all the time, this idea that to make this work, you need these teachers who are willing to, you know, on their own time, go make copies somewhere, spend their own money to buy supplies mm-hmm. that the, the system is not providing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. supposedly they get summers off, but work through the summer so they can be prepared to do new things uh, when, the, when the fall comes. So we have the system on the one hand, but the best parts of that system end up being individuals like your wife, Jenny, my wife, Janelle, Kyle, Elise, who this is more a calling. This is an, an occupation, certainly, but it's also a calling that they're mm-hmm. dedicating themselves to. Um, and I'm not sure if that's that's ideal in many ways. It's great that um, that, you know, people are dedicated to their jobs, but it's a, it's a pretty weak system that relies on people to be that dedicated to make to make it work. Is that fair? Yeah, I see your point. In other words, you know, kind of nods at that or something. And uh, heck, you even get a little thing on your taxes if you're itemizing, you know, about teacher mm-hmm. teacher supplies, you know. And there's not there's right. not a year when right. you don't max that out, you know. But um, yeah, and I, you know, I'm I've been doing it long enough, and I'm not going to get in the weeds on this. But I, you know, back in the '90s, uh, was was present for some interesting discussions while I was doing my doctoral work in in the nation's capital and they bring in speakers and the guy from the Brookings Institute came in and told us how, uh, you know, frustrated he was. He had made a call to the New York city school district one time and, it, and he was transferred a half a dozen times before someone could answer a simple question. And he took it to mean that, you know, that this was a bureaucratic system of education that was failing. And that what we really needed was to get on a business model because no business could ever survive with that kind of inefficiency. And, and, and you recall that, Around that time, the, the late 80s and early 90s, you know, the Japanese automakers were just, you know, killing Detroit mm-hmm. still, right, with their fuel-efficient cars and their systems, management systems. And so we were sending all kinds of people over there to study the Japanese way of making cars. And people were coming back saying, you know, well, they, they work in teams, you know. It's not just a bunch of individual workers on an assembly. And they have teams. There. And so the next thing we get in education here, you know, this education put on a, on a business foundation, you know, was uh, working in teams. And any teacher now would, would be utterly familiar with PLCs, you know, professional learning communities. And, and now teachers are grouped together to work out, you know, issues of assessment and assignments and curriculum and all that kind of stuff, uh, particularly in the public schools. And the examination of that assumption is has only just, I think, begun now, it was a kind of unexamined assumption. Somehow, this was a better way. If it worked for Japanese automakers, it worked better that way for schools. Because ultimately, what, what are we doing? It's a transactional business education. We're putting out a product called what? A right. graduate or something, I guess. Is that the logic? Yeah, they, they put in students and we yeah. send out informed citizens or something like that. I think that's the, I think that's the logic of it. Right. Good pliant yeah. workers, is that it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
Yeah, and and you know, outcomes-based education is just a is a you know is a kind of echo of that, and that and what I'm talking about is something again every teacher understands for the last decade or so. You know, is this outcome-based education where we're actually often required to state in so many words what will be the outcome of a student, you know, doing the following things in in your class, and you know, I always tell my students. Uh, if I do my job right, it's going to be something like anarchy mm-hmm. would be the outcome. <laughs> well, okay, not anarchy necessarily, but I'm talking about students who are equipped to think for themselves, as as Connolly said, to yeah. ask questions, to challenge authority, to wonder if true, you know, the Truman balcony, if what we're seeing there really represents a legitimate use of government. I mean, these kinds of things. It's subversive. Let's face it. Becoming an educated person vis-a-vis systems is rather subversive. If, if the goal of systems is to create a kind of uniformity, you know, a kind of interchangeability, then the, the job of education has never been to do that, at least not as, as I've understood it from the time of Socrates, you know, in, until now. And so, heck, I, you know, sometimes I, I know I've told you this story so many times, I'm starting to sound like, you know, your <laughs> uncle or something. Um, but, you know, my favorite movies from 1969, Downhill Racer, you know, is this story. And, and it's, by the way, if you watch it now, the Robert Redford character is, you know, wildly misogynistic. And, you know, it kind of harkens back to our very first discussion yeah, about the movie right. MASH, you know, those those edgy movies from the late 60s. And now Strike Us is being pretty racist, pretty misogynistic. Where you're like, oh, yeah, they're just assholes. Exactly. They're not charming. And this this asshole was a downhill racer and he was the best one on the U.S. Olympic team. And he and he took all kinds of chances. And, he wasn't much of a teammate, didn't show up. And Gene Hackman played the Olympic team coach. And, you know, the other guys on the team were upset because Robert Redford's character would never kind of, you know, conform to the the meetings and other things. And one of them says to the coach, to Gene Hackman, you know, he's he's not good for the team. You know, and Gene Hackman's response was, I'm, I'm not sure it's a team sport, you know. <laughs> and I've always thought about that with teaching because, you know, uh, Look, I mean, ultimately, it's you in the classroom, isn't it, Josh? It's what you're bringing. And no matter how much of the curriculum or even the methodology or the assessment has has been, you know, stamped with a kind of, uh, you know, team approval or, or, you know, uniformity, you know, at the end of the day, what your students need most is for you to be on. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. I do. I do to a certain extent. I mean, I think the, the, the team thing, it's so corporate in many ways. Like, you know, if you go into Target now, you're going to see every employee's got their name tag and it says team member. Like that's such, <laughs> become such a common thing, right? Yeah. So that they we're all just part of a team. Yes, somebody on that team gets paid hundreds of times more than, than you get paid, but it's all part of the same team, of course. But I, I do think, you know, that there there's value in community, right? Um, and that the community, you know, ultimately you're the one in the front of the classroom. You're the, you're the one who's creating the assignments. You're the one grading, grading the assignments as we, we both know so well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, even what we're just doing on this podcast, we, we've talked about this already, but but what we've been talking about for the past six months has made me a better teacher, I believe, right? It's made me a more conscientious, mm-hmm. conscientious thinker about history, and that has improved, I think, the way I approach history in the classroom. So it, it's tough because I, I do think these kind of mandated teams does smack of this kind of corporate, you know, kind of way of, of approaching, uh, you know, education and, and the idea that we need to make education more like the business world is is so frustrating so infuriating to me um given what we know about the business world and how corrupt and inefficient and uh, awful it is 
But, you know, getting back to the story, to Deadwood, actually, I think one of the lessons of Deadwood is that creating those communities is ultimately the, the most important thing you do, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the, the, the mm-hmm. systems that matter, it's the communities that matter. Um, and so I, I think building those communities is, is, is a vital part of, of what we do, even if, again, it is an individual sport, to use that metaphor. Yeah, yeah and I was just talking about the, the performance of teaching itself. Yeah. I mean, I, right, look, right, right. you know, uh, Kyle and Elise are on a, on a little three-person team, which they gain a lot of, I think, support and inspiration from. And so, you know, I first of all, I would say community, absolutely. You know, um, we're trying to create a community of learners, a community of colleagues, of scholars, etc., uh, that that inspires that kind of uh, you know that 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 performance that that dedication that that creativity uh, and I, and so yeah no I would only I would only suggest that when I say team I'm I'm very much defining it in that that kind of transactional corporate model in that target sense right absolutely you know and um, you know the, the the and so the you're right I mean the the label itself has been co opted. You know, by by those you know those soul soulless technocrats, you know that create these systems, <laughs> because you know team per se isn't, you know, my objection. We both grew up playing different kinds of sports and whatnot, and you know some of the best experiences you have, you know, are being part of a team, and and even when you're playing, you know, a, a sport that that is you know mano a mano, like you know tennis or something, you're still part of a larger community, and so mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's a really important distinction that you make there. You know, and it's one that we should, as educators, definitely, you know, fight to preserve is that community is a very different idea than what uh, the word team has come to mean in that system, that kind of, uh, you know, corporate system. And, and, and so as a teacher, you know, whether it's, you know, a high school gov teacher or you and me at the community college or, you know, Purnell, who we had on, la- Purnella we had on last week, you know, at, at University of Pittsburgh, is that um, we're always seemingly fighting that that system, you know, mm-hmm. to to create that moment for our students, to 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 bring that material, to create that experience that doesn't necessarily lend itself, you know, to the um, formal mechanisms, you know, of of the system that is created, a system that is created, and among other things, to create. You know, to to enforce discipline and, and accountability and all these kinds of things. You know, I'm I'm always going off. Uh, you've heard me many times. You know that the presumption is always that there's a really bad teacher out there somewhere that, if left unregulated, is going to ruin everything. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I personally haven't met that teacher. You know, I'm, but in a country of 330 million, I'm I'm sure there are a few. You know, and they make their way into the newspapers occasionally. But by by and large, the colleagues I know. And, and when we hear from a Kyle Fitzpatrick or Elise Robeson, you know, or, or Janelle or Jenny, our own spouses, or any of the, the folks that we ourselves work with, I'm almost always inspired. And when I was department chair at American River College, you know, I watched every single instructor we had, whether part-time, full-time. So I went to 24, 25 different instructors and courses, and I was I never failed to take something away or to be inspired by something. And everybody had something different they could do, you know? Mm-hmm. What Weiner did versus what Paget did, what Hashima did or Katone, et cetera. The, you know, they all had their own way, 
you know, of, of creating that moment uh, for students. And it was an easy enough thing to then talk about, well, you know, but you didn't put this in your syllabus or, mm. you know, don't, don't, don't forget. <laughs> the system. You know, it's the system. Then you had that, to talk about the system. That's yeah. the least inspiring and easiest part, you know, but, but really the, the creative aspect of it is that part. And don't forget, I mean, in some ways, I don't make too much of this, you know, but, it, but if we can sort of trace our lineage back to, let's say, Socrates. Just go with me for a second here, okay? So I've always been a fan of the Western well, tradition. Well, you know, Socrates is, the Greek is not the West, all right? The Greek, it's the okay. Mediterranean. I'm going to insist on that. <laughs> is that, uh, you know, Socrates is teaching the young of Athens, you know, something very subversive, isn't he? You know, he's teaching them to question mm. all the, uh, the, the, the received notions of, of what Athens was, you know, what Greek democracy was, of what power, what justice, right? You know, what justice was. And and what was his fate, Josh? Um, he got, they gave him a drink, right? That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it, teachers. You know, you, you, you do that most inspiring work and you're liable to be punished for it at the end of the day by the system, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know... Going back to that idea, like, you know, us going to the classrooms with our welcome uh, Professor Weiner team member uh, thing on, you know, if if what we are are just members of this this team, then I think the other part of that is our students then become our customers. And I, and I know we both complained about the way that students are often talked about in kind of these official uh, discussions of, of curriculum and, and, and stuff where they are, you know, like we are the we're the workers and they're the they're the customers and of course in a system where you're the you're you know the retail employee that you're supposed the customer's always right and i think that leaches into the into the system as well at a certain point um and that's i think something we definitely have to fight fight against because one of the things i've been trying to communicate to my students this semester in particular given the times we're in is that it's not a relationship where you know i'm the superior and they're the inferiors it's not a relationship where they're you know the customers and i'm the the person serving them that ultimately that we are allies, we're on the same team, right? The, the, the job in the end is to get them to think in a broader, more complex, uh, you know, more historical fashion. And that's what I want for them and that's what they should want for themselves. And to the extent that that's our goal, then we can work together for that goal as opposed to this traditional idea that, you know, the, the job of the teacher is supposed to be almost punitive, right? That you've got to do these things to make sure that they're going to get their work done. It's it's actually just like you were saying about how the system is built for this imaginary terrible teacher mm. that the system needs to be protected protected against. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the the teaching system has been founded for for so long in this imaginary terrible student that we got to we got to kind of keep out of their own way as best we can. And what both ideas do, whether it's this this educational system that's protecting us against bad teachers or a system of teaching which is protecting us against bad students, is it doesn't serve good teachers and it doesn't serve good students and it doesn't create good students for that matter matter either. So um, that was a long, long ramp, but you just got me thinking about a bunch of no, stuff that, that kind of fit together, fit together there. Preach it, preach it partner. Um, and I promise I won't call you customer service representative whiner. Okay. <laughs> You're still professor. I just want my name tag. <laughs> You're professor in my book, man. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love it. And I, and I love hearing you give voice to that. And I, I, I would, uh, Certainly support all our brothers and sisters out there in teacher land, you know, be it, uh, you know, from kindergarten through, you know, grade 16, you know, to uh, fully embrace that, that, you know, that, that creative 
ownership of, of, of what you do. And, and hey, you know, listen, if there's an upside to Trump, I can say, go ahead and break the rules you need to break because you ain't going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't he kind of just laying bare the, the, the rotting bones of the system in many ways? <laughs> I mean, that's, use, that's useful to a certain extent. I, I know I'm not the first person to say that, but there is, there is value in, in um, you know, uh, I think it's Amy Cesare who talks about, or maybe it was Franz Fanon who talks about the bewilderers in our society, yeah, the yeah. ones who kind of yeah. are there to, to hide what's actually happening from, from us. And I think there's some value in, in just dropping that curtain and you can see that these bewilders are just doing like stupid tricks right they're pulling coins out of your ear but they're actually <laughs> just wearing their hand the whole time right that the, the ball didn't actually come out of their nose it was it was tucked into a sleeve or something like that um and so yeah if there's a benefit to the if we survive the trump years we'll put it that way mm-hmm. um i hopefully one of the benefits will, benefits will be is that we can see how rotten the system was from the start that he didn't you know maybe he's the last step of this this rottenness but he didn't create the rottenness he's just exposing exposing it inadvertently i would say but exposing yeah. it um and uh and, and showing us what 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 we're up against i guess uh, such a, yeah it's it's worth saying and look i mean lest that that little deft analogy be taken too seriously i mean uh, to my my last breath you know my friend i'm going to say that you know the that the teachers of the world you know still embody virtue and nobility and the, and the better nature of ourselves, the better angels of ourselves, you know. Uh, mm. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, about that, uh, you know, that, that character standing on the Truman balcony. So, uh, yeah, and it's okay that we tell each other that every once in a while, you know. Um, education can be subversive. Education, you know, can resist systems at time and as, right. as the uh, you know the professionals entrusted you know by the uh, by the system you know we we, <laughs> we, we can often um, you know find find that creative place whether or not the system encourages us uh, to do so or not yeah we're like those little mites that that you know that get into ants and they lay their eggs and then they <laughs> burst out of the ant <laughs> is that too gruesome <laughs> Right now we're just we're laying these eggs inside the system, and soon the yep. the subversive version is going to burst out and overwhelm the entire system. Right? I want you to use that when you do the speech at graduation next time. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> students, we're all the mites. The system is the ants. I'm going to rewrite Marx. That's better than the break the chains and workers of the world unite. Mites of the world unite. <laughs> all right, listen. That's episode twenty five. I don't know what anniversary quarter that century. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Episode 25, and we got some great stuff lined up for you coming uh, coming our way here over the next few weeks. So, uh, as always, we appreciate you giving up some of your time to hear what uh, uh, what we what we're throwing down. Talk to you next Nobody time. Is it's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again, so you don't have to see what's happening. Then now what's going on in these streets? You can't live by. What you see on TV Stop sucking a cycle so we